This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. If you're playing Trivial Pursuit, does anybody actually do that anymore? You might find that Sarah Josepha Hale was the author of Mary Had a Little Lamb a verse infamous as the best Thomas Edison could come up with for the very first ever recorded words, and as an explanation for Mary's predilection for mint jelly. Now, if that's all there was to Hale's story, we could pretty much wrap this segment up right here. But there is more. Oh, there is so much more, and Thanksgiving is just a part of it. And to tell that story and explain why we're telling it now is Melanie Kirkpatrick, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, former deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. More to the point for us, she is the author of Lady Editor, the story of Sarah Josepha Hale and the making of the modern American woman, as well as Thanksgiving, the holiday at the heart of the American experience. It's good to have you with us, Melanie. How are you? Very well, thank you. And it's wonderful to be with you. And before we get to Hale's role in Thanksgiving, and it is a significant one, let's get some background. Your book starts with tragedy, the, the night her husband became ill, leading to his death. Hale is, in my view, the most influential woman in American history. But she, she was a celebrity in the 19th century, but hardly anybody knows her today. She uh, was a New Englander from New Hampshire, uh, married a lawyer, had th four kids, and the fifth was on the way when uh, her husband died leaving her with these children. And uh, she was desperate to figure out how to raise them and educate them. Her husband had thought she was a good writer, so she decided she would try to sell some of her work. And she was successful at that, moderately, but it wasn't enough on which to raise her kids. And then she wrote a book, a novel called, um, a, a novel about 
slavery. And remember, this was 25 or so years before Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it was successful. And as a result of the success of that novel, it came out in 1827, she was asked to edit a new magazine for women. It went on to become the most popular magazine of the pre-war, pre-Civil War era. It's known as Godey's Ladies Book, and many of our listeners probably know of it because it was famous for its fashion spreads. But beyond fashion, Hale made it a, a real intellectual journal. She wrote about education for women, about employment for women, and uh, about uh, women uh, uh, who worked at home needing more respect for their profession. You know, it brings up something of a, a, a paradox before we get to the rest of her story and her Thanksgiving connection, which is extremely strong. It be, even though she was for women's education and women being able to work and for so many women's rights and all, she was also thought that it was very important in terms of what a woman's role was in marriage and the home. And the reason I started by asking about the tragedy of her husband dying while she's pregnant with her fifth child is if he had not died or if she had remarried, we might not be talking about her at all today. You're absolutely right. And because she was a widow, and I think she chose to be a widow, Gil, instead of remarrying, because she was a willow, widow, that meant she had uh, more legitimacy uh, in society. For example, in the law, uh, under the law back then, um, a wife's possessions um, were the property of her husband, and her husband decided what to do with them. So when Hale became um, an editor in 1828, that meant she could act for herself. She could commission articles, she could pay authors, she could run this magazine, something that would have been very difficult for her to do uh, if she had a husband. But even in terms, and, and show how influential and important she was, even in terms of men's magazines at that time, commissioning new works was not something that was going on. America's culture at that time was still expressed mainly in terms of what was going on in Europe. And even these, you know, fairly influential men's magazines at the time were just something that somebody found when the boat came with a bunch of British magazines and they cut and pasted it into a magazine. And, and there you have it. She was commissioning new stuff from authors who had become, you know, an important part of American literature. It, you, know, you know, you're right. In addition to her work in making education for women acceptable and desirable, she had a huge influence on the development of American media. She believed that our country had been unified by the revolution, unified politically, but not culturally. And so Hale set out to make her magazine um, about America and about American culture to help develop an American culture. And that meant literature, it meant um, food, it meant fashion, and it meant 
uh, customs, so um, such as child reading customs, recipes. She was the first editor to have a recipe section in her publication. And um, her magazine, Godie's Ladies Book, was uh, one of the first magazines to circulate nationwide. So it meant that uh, women all around the country this new country, were reading her uh, work and being influenced by it. Yeah, it's important to mark in education, which you mentioned. When she started pushing for education of women, only half of American women could read. And there was not a single institution of higher learning in this country that would admit women. That's exactly right. Sarah Hale was probably, well, she was certainly one of the best educated women um, in the early part of the 19th century. Uh, her, she had been homeschooled by her mother and then by her brother, who uh, went off to Dartmouth and would come home at vacations and teach Hale everything <laughs> he had learned at Dartmouth. But uh, as you mentioned, there was no institute of higher education for women. And one of the things Hale did was um, she kept stressing in her work that women were the intellectual equals of men. And if only they had the same kind of education, they would be able to perform as well in the professions as men were. She supported women as teachers. For example, in the 1820s, men were teachers and women were, uh, if they taught, were considered capable of teaching small children, but not the more difficult subjects to older kids. And how could you expect a woman to uh, manage active boys in her classroom? Well, she went on to show that this was possible and even desirable. You and mentioned that she wrote. You mentioned that she wrote the first anti-slavery novel, Northwood, which is interesting because if you ask people today what novel that would be, pretty much everybody would say it was Harriet Beecher Stowe, a, exactly. a writer who she first published along with Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Everybody would say it was Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. How did this first book get? sort of lost in our history? You know, that's an interesting question. Uh, I guess I would say it's a hard read for um, a modern uh, reader, but so is um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I, um, it's, it's a very good question, and I don't know enough about how the, the um, publishing industry for books worked back then, but, uh, you know, you can still find it online, but it's certainly not in print anymore. And I should mention that she wrote many books and many, many articles, millions of words over the course of her long career. Um, the uh, Yale biography um, uh, did a collected uh, her works and determined that she had written and published more than 125 books over the course of her long life. But uh, it certainly uh, Northwood certainly hasn't lived on. Well, there's a lot more to find out about the woman who was the mother of this Thanksgiving holiday coming up on the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. <laughs> 
This is the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we're talking with Melanie Kirkpatrick, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and former deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page, and the author of Lady Editor, the story of Sarah Josepha Hale and the making of the modern American woman, as well as the book Thanksgiving, the holiday at the heart of the American experience, and how that woman and that holiday are forever linked. In Northward, there is a chapter about uh, a New England Thanksgiving Day. And in my view, it's the best writing on our holiday, about the meaning of our holiday uh, in all of American literature. She has a magnificent description of uh, uh, the food that people ate and the uh, kind of the conviviality, how people gathered together on the day, the uh, the the device that she used to describe this is has a, a New England family is entertaining an Englishman who is new to our country, and so they have to describe to him what Thanksgiving is all about. And yes, turkey was on the menu in her Thanksgiving way back then. So let's get to her role in this holiday. Even though this will come as a surprise, I think, to most listeners, it would not be an exaggeration to say the reason why we nationally mark this day was Sarah Josepha Hale, somebody who most Americans were probably never heard of. Yes. Thanksgiving uh, was an you know, essentially a New England holiday originally. And it as New Englanders traveled west to uh, you know, uh, explore the frontiers of America, they took the holiday with them. So that's one reason the holiday began to spread. At the time that uh, Sarah Hale was writing in the early part of uh, the 19th century, the 1820s, 30s, 40s, uh, most, not every, but most states had a Thanksgiving Day. It was called by the governor of the state, and it could be any day between September and December. The point being that um, uh, Americans didn't celebrate on the same day. And there was a marvelous saying that uh, you, if you want, you could have a Thanksgiving day, a dinner, a good Thanksgiving dinner every week between election day and Christmas day, if you've planned your travel itinerary correctly. So um, she thought that uh, um, Americans should uh, come together on the same day, and she set out to make that happen using the power of um, Godey's Ladies Book to um, uh, express her idea and get governors and uh, the public to sign on to it. In addition, she uh, had a private letter writing campaign that uh, she wrote to the governors of every state and to congressmen and to other influential figures trying to persuade them to uh, support her idea. It says something of her influence at the time in American culture, that at a time when, frankly, most men in power would see, and especially in politics, at a time women could not even vote, uh, would, you know, ignore a letter from from a woman came that would come to them asking them to do anything. Hers were opened. Hers were read. Hers had influence. 
Exactly. She wrote to presidents of the United States who wrote back to her. Unfortunately, before Lincoln, the response was always, we like your idea, but no, the president doesn't have the authority under the Constitution to call such a day. Even though George Washington, as Hale pointed out, even though George Washington had done so in 1789. But, um, so they said that the, the presidents who responded to her said that that um, authority was left to the governors of the individual states. Now, Lincoln gets the credit, as well he should, for officially making it a national holiday. But the idea and the decades of pushing for it did come from Hale. Why was she so enamored of Thanksgiving? What did she think a national celebration of Thanksgiving on the same day nationwide could do where it was so important to her. She talked about the moral influence of the holiday, that um, Americans would step back and take the time to think about um, their blessings, what we should be grateful for as a nation, as a family, individually. She also saw it as a time for families to come together. She uh, obviously, as uh, uh, as an editor of a women's magazine, she was very interested in family life and in the role of the wife and mother in a family. She thought of um, Thanksgiving in part as a, as a more female holiday. The only other holidays I should point out that America had at the time were George Washington's birthday, uh, in February, and of course, the 4th of July. So there was another factor in calling for a Thanksgiving holiday, which was that uh, there was a holiday, a national holiday in February, there was another one in July, and be nice to have one in the fall. Christmas wasn't celebrated, by the way, as a national holiday until the 1870s. Although and we could get into a conversation uh, about Sarah Josepha Hale with Christmas as well, because if we look at our Christmas trees, we should also be thinking of Sarah Josepha Hale. Precisely. Yeah, she was the one who introduced the idea of a Christmas tree to America and made it popular. Okay, so uh, the first to put recipes uh, in books, the, the, the person who started introducing American writing to Americans, uh, the person who pushed hard for women to be educated, even for things we won't have time to talk about, like wearing white as a wedding dress, Sarah Josepha Hale. How is this woman then mostly forgotten? I've struggled with that question, um, and I think there are a couple of answers. She was editor, an editor for 50 years. She retired just a couple of years before her death in uh, uh, 1877. And I think a few things happened. One is that the country got ahead of her, that uh, they accepted her ideas about education and about employment for women. Um, and there was, of course, a, a, a suffrage movement that was gaining power. But Hale did not think that women should vote. 
And her reason is interesting. She thought that they could be more influential over politics, advising the men in their family than she, they could be getting into the rough and tumble of politics where they would have to compromise. Politics was a dirty business, and who can argue with that? Uh, uh, and she thought that women um, could rise above it and keep their eyes on the most important issues. So that's one reason. Today, it's very hard for um, um, Americans, I think, to feel um, sympathetic to a woman who was anti-suffrage, as I might add, were um, a majority of women of, of her era. Another reason is because Godey's Ladies Book kind of fell apart after her death, and it became um, a much more trivial, not very consequential magazine, and finally uh, in the 1890s it closed. So, um, and she perhaps was unfairly associated with uh, that magazine. People forgot about her influence in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s when it came to educating women. There are also things that, that seem at odds with one another, at least to our culture today in the 21st century. So there seems to be a, a, a paradox with her character, at least as we look at it now. Can you explain that? She was a very practical woman, Gil, and she recognized uh, with great clarity, I think, that uh, she had to make a tough, she had to make tough decisions about her life. And she chose to leave her four younger children with family members. They were dispersed among a couple of family members. And for the benefit of earning a living so that she could educate them, she wouldn't have been able to afford to send them to college um, if she hadn't, or educate them in other ways, if she hadn't taken that job. So, uh, and um, I, you know, the, the, the pain of that separation is very clear in her writing as she got older. It's an amazing story. It's somebody who is important in our history, important for the discovery of several writers, for holidays, for things that we take for granted at weddings, at holidays, for take for granted for things we see in magazines, and of course, for Thanksgiving, and a name that I'm glad you have brought back to currency. Melanie Kirkpatrick is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, former deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. And again, if you have interest in this, which I think you probably do at this point, the author of two terrific books about, uh, about this day, Lady Editor, the story of Sarah Josepha Hale and the making of the modern American woman, and Thanksgiving, the holiday at the heart of the American experience. Melanie, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. Good to be with you. We have more for you now, the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. There are many parts of celebrating Thanksgiving we refer to as holiday traditions, but just as Thanksgiving is a national holiday, it took a couple of hundred years to happen. What we call traditions, obviously, at one time were not. So, 
How did what we know as Thanksgiving develop? Now, I don't ask such questions on these specials unless I have somebody who can give us answers. It's hard to fill up three hours with rhetorical questions. And that's why history professor Matthew Dennis is here from the University of Oregon. He is also the author of Red, White, and Blue Letter Days, an American calendar. Welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thanksgiving fascinates me, and not just for turkey, friends, and football, but this is a holiday really rich in American history. Just as there's a lot of sheer contentment in this day, there's also a lot of our culture wrapped in on it, not always something that will leave people contented. Uh, yeah. I mean, Thanksgiving is, is, is as old as it gets. I mean, it, it dates to the, uh, to, the, to the colonial period, and in fact, is pretty much universal in human cultures. Most, most, most societies um, take time out to thank thank uh, thank you know whoever uh, a higher being or or their communities or each other for whatever bounty they have and in American history um, you know it's ensconced in the or, or uh, the origin myth of the pilgrims and um, you know goes all the way up to the present and is one of those traditions that's constantly transforming itself uh, based on some kind of basic foundations which it turns out, even though they're very traditional and filled with um, kind of mythic ballast, are nonetheless quite uh, quite flexible and amenable to uh, to the transformations uh, in um, American culture over the last several hundred years. Yeah, and even though on another great American holiday steeped in history, July 4th, we have pretty much kept the same kind of conversation going for all of this time. It's different on Thanksgiving, the other day where we talk about actual American history. This is evolving more than other days. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's been evolving from from the beginning. I mean, one of the things about it is it's a it's a kind of self made grassroots holiday um, that's been um, you know kind of supported and institutionalized at various times. Um, the key moment is maybe we'd maybe point to the to the uh, Civil War right before. Um, in um, 1863, when uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, in his proclamation, uh, you know, kind of created it as a, as a national holiday, but it, it existed a long time before, and it transformed, um, you know, from really the 17th century up to the middle of the, the 19th century, and then you know it continued to transform into the uh, second half of the 19th century, became in, in a way kind of less less political, and and um, and and then, um, but always had that. Uh, potential to be politicized. And yet, um, Americans really kind of don't want it to be politicized. Um, they want it to be this kind of haven from, from politics and, and, and the world while also actually bringing the world in. It's, 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 a, it's a really um, interesting, complicated amalgam of tradition and innovation. And it's, you know, it's been that way from the start. Yeah, and before we go back to the beginnings of Thanksgiving and all, this is interesting in that even though it's a national holiday and it starts off with, you know, the big parades in New York and Philadelphia and such, it really is a national holiday that's mainly a private day. We spend it at home. We spend it with family and friends. We generally, you know, unless it's a football game, and even there, it's mostly, you know, wherever the TV is in our house. It's a day where we're all doing the same thing, not necessarily together, but we're doing the same sort of thing, eating the same sort of food at the same time. So it's this big national holiday. It's also this very special private day. 
Yeah, it's it's a day filled with paradox, as you said. It's 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 a public holiday, a national holiday, and it's profoundly uh, private. It's it's national in scope, but really local and decentralized in the way that we celebrate it. It's a kind of inward-looking, um, family, community-centered, but it's also inclusive and um, outward-looking. Uh, Thanksgiving tends to be the time when people most often think to volunteer at soup kitchens and, and think about those less fortunate as they're you know, trying to celebrate their own good fortune. Um, it's, it's kind of uh, nationalistic, and, uh, but it's also pluralistic. That is, you, you, you celebrate it at home in a way that um, doesn't necessarily contradict um, who you are individually or as an ethnic or racial or uh, religious group. Um, so it's, it has this kind of um, almost sacred quality, but it's, it's sometimes even religious quality, but it's nonsectarian and it's, it's ecumenical. It's, it's something that, um, that faiths that often don't agree with each other on anything uh, can nonetheless celebrate um, not to get ne- together necessarily, but at the same time in their own houses and communities. So it has this, it has this historical template um, that's accessorized over time by Americans in ways that help them kind of create a sense of belonging, um, but not in a way that costs them, you know, kind of sense of who they are. The history of this holiday is not quite as traditional as you would think. We'll hear more about that coming up on the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. Good to have you back for more of the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. We've been hearing about how this day became so special from Matthew Dennis, a professor at the University of Oregon. He's also the author of Red, White, and Blue Letter Days, an American calendar. The Pilgrims and Puritans, once major symbols of this day, are somewhat falling off the radar now as far as holiday decorations and school plays are concerned with with people just kind of thinking, yeah, everybody got together for a, a nice dinner, but really being more concerned with how we're treating each other now than going back and dressing up as pilgrims and the, and the history of all of that. There's, there's somewhat of a feeling of, yeah, the history's sort of a mess, but this is a wonderful day. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's another one of those paradoxes. You know, one of the things that we celebrate at Thanksgiving is uh, an Im- immigrant story, a migrant story of uh, people arriving in this wilderness and, and and finding opportunity and liberty and and prosperity. Um, but it's also actually a native story, and it's getting that way more and more. And so people are more and more conscious, I think, of native perspectives and that there were people here before. That this land wasn't uh, free and 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 open um, for for colonization necessarily. And so I, I think that this kind of evolution of consciousness is there. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be front and center at every Thanksgiving table. Um, you know, just the simple fact of getting together, uh, being generous, being kind, being inclusive, um, and just focusing on the most important aspects of one's life often, which is, you know, family and immediate friends, um, is there. But I mean, these, these other, these other um, myths or other his, historical context are there, and they don't necessarily contradict um, the thing that people are doing on their own, and and that's kind of a that's kind of a unique um, phenomenon. Yeah, it is. And you mentioned the fact that other cultures have embraced this. People have come to this country. You mentioned that it was an immigrant experience to a certain extent. You had the pilgrims who were immigrants at that time with people who were at that time a majority, later a minority, you know, getting together. I mean, the pilgrims were 
real immigrant minority ever thrown the heck out of out of England where they were despised and sat down. Um, it, this day was accepted by people as they tried to assimilate into being Americans because unlike so many other holidays, this was a day about being welcomed by those who already lived here. It became very popular with immigrants to America in the 20th century. This was part of becoming Americans was to abandon your own foods for a day and and eat what everybody else was going to eat and celebrate this day where everybody else was celebrating. There were prescriptive elements about it. I mean, you know, the, the school curriculums in cities like New York would try to emphasize this as a kind of way of Americanizing immigrants. Uh, but the thing about it was that it didn't actually cost immigrants very much. And, and so, yeah, they could, they could have um, uh, turkey, which might be a unique uh, dish for them. But, um, but there was no, no uh, preventing them from, um, you know, mixing in um, you know, other kinds of side dishes. Um, there's no one, no one kind of monitoring the, the dinner table at these individual residences. And so people, uh, it allowed people a lot of um, leeway and liberty in terms of uh, creating an own, their own way to be American. And they're just as American as anyone else when they're celebrating Thanksgiving in their own homes. And that's, you know, that's something they could hang their hat on. It wasn't, it was, it was, it was real. And, and, um, and it was a way that uh, many communities did in fact, um, you know, become more American, you know, along with things like, you know, baseball and, uh, and, and such. And you could invite the, the neighbors over and nobody was going to look at the table. If you were recent immigrants, going, what the heck is that? It was going to be turkey. It was going to be sweet potatoes. It was going to be stuffing. Um, there was going to be, you know, maybe pecan pie, maybe uh, pumpkin pie, apple pie. But there was going to be things where you can invite the neighbors who were still wondering how much of an American you had become. And it's like, oh, look, look at this. And that was important to a lot of people. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, like American culture, one of the great things about American culture is American food, which is in fact the incorporation of just about every great cuisine around the world. And so any Thanksgiving dinner is going to be better if it has, uh, say, uh, some sog paneer or some uh, tamales or uh, uh, risotto or, you know, who knows what beyond the, uh, the turkey and the, the, uh, the, the squash and the, you know, potatoes. Um, you know, every, every, every society pretty much has their own form of bread and there's no reason why, um, why non can't, couldn't be on the table along with, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, classic Yankee biscuits. You mentioned also, it was a day where we looked after the less fortunate, uh, that's so interesting. I, I did for years on, um, a radio station in San Francisco, uh, took over what we would do every year, which was broadcast our entire show, uh, from St. Anthony's where they were serving Thanksgiving dinner and raise money, not just for that day, but for the year long care of people who would come to places like St. Anthony's and other places around the Bay area to get food. 365 days a year. People feel the need to share. It really, Thanksgiving brings out the best of us. How did that develop? Or do we even know how that developed? Well, you know, the original Thanksgiving, you know, the real event that actually became mythologized um, was a three-day harvest home festival, a harvest festival in the fall of 1621, um, where Native people who outnumbered the pilgrims uh, by at least two to one, um, 
came together and shared their food. The native people showed up bringing um, venison and, and a lot of other uh, meats and, uh, and, you know, the pilgrims, they had raised some vegetables and so it was, so it was, it was a kind of a potluck. And, um, and so, you know, it was, it was this, you know, kind of sharing event by the, um, by, let's say by the middle of the 19th century, you could see in illustrations in the major uh, weeklies and periodicals of the time, um, the classic, kind of middle-class household, uh, patriarch sitting in a chair, reading a paper, women getting everything together. And some, some poor naif, like sitting, sitting in a, in a, on the chair, bring brought, brought into the, to the Thanksgiving table and being fed off the bounty of more, more fortunate Americans. And you can see this motif, uh, you know, go on and on. So, uh, you know, and during the second half of the 19th century, when, um, uh, American was industrializing and commercializing in new ways. Um, you know, there were there were often um, like turkey giveaways. Uh, you know, the the, the, uh, the poultry industry uh, you know was promoting sort of things, and shopkeepers would give away turkeys and have uh, turkey trots where you could you know they'd release uh, in certain communities they'd release a bunch of turkeys off of the, the roof of a shop or, or or some kind of building, and people would run after them, and then else that would evolve into races and things. But I, I think it's just like the the, the focus on thanks um, brings to people's awareness apparently um, in unique ways um, that while they're while they have what they what what little they have they're thankful for, they know that some people have less, and so um, it's it's a, to to kind of celebrate what they have. Um, they often uh, look outward. And, and try to find ways to make their community better. Um, because after all, it is a, you know, a community event. And um, even though it's, it's celebrated individually, this is, this is one of those outreach aspects of it that is really remarkable. It is a beloved American holiday. In many polls, it comes up as the most beloved American holiday. And it is a day where we share, which is very unique. In, in American traditions. Matthew Dennis is a history professor from the University of Oregon. He's also the author of Red, White, and Blue Letter Days, an American calendar. Matthew, thank you so much for being with us. Have a great Thanksgiving. My pleasure. Happy Thanksgiving to you and everyone out there. Stay right here for more of the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. How do you get ready for unexpected guests? I mean, other than, you know, turning out the lights and taping a beware of vicious dog sign on the door. And we're talking with Stephen Orr, the editor-in-chief of Better Homes and Gardens. Someone with your job would be my worst nightmare for an unexpected guest. I'd be afraid you'd just be looking around my house going, wrong color, not centered, bad fabric. I, how do you deal with just the idea? Because I know this really hits a lot of people. People come over for their first time and they might be critical of their house. I want people to be able to live the way they want to live. Um, and at Better Homes and Gardens, I think what we're always trying to help people with is being happy, as happy as they can be in their homes. So I think most of us love our homes. Most of us realize that um, there's always something to make better, right? So that's what that's what we're talking about here is when people come over um, nothing's perfect. My house isn't perfect. You know, it's, it's kind of like, there's many things in my house that make no sense. I, I'd say one of the things, Gil, I think of psychologically about it is when you do have people over, whether they're expected or invited or dropping by, it does kind of make you see your house in new ways. You know what I mean? And that's, that's good for us because um, it's good. We get used to the way things are. And sometimes I'll have people over 
for a dinner party and they'll leave. And the next day I look around, I'm like, I didn't even explain why that weird, you know, piece of furniture sitting in that weird spot because it's not meant to be there. You know, you don't want to make excuses, but also sometimes things are in progress. or You haven't gotten around to something. I think we all just, you know, in this day and age, of course, need to give each other a break, really. So I don't think I don't think most people are being hypercritical. I, I think as we know about our own self-criticism, um, we care more than everyone else does about that stuff. So I, I think just let people come over, um, you know. If, if things are a bit messy, you know, so be it. So people are coming over and let's exclude the, I've planned this for, for months. This was the thing. People are flying in from out of town. I know that. And isn't this going to be great? So when hosting something that's kind of impromptu like that, what should people be aware of? Well, I think, you know, the idea, <clears throat> the idea of dropping in depends on where you live. Like in New York City, people don't drop in, right? And that's where I live. But also I've lived other places where it's in a neighborhood and, and like I've lived in Des Moines, Iowa, and people will stop by. And so I think during the holidays, you might, depending on where you live, you might expect that people might drop by. So having a few things ready uh, for them is always a good idea. So having a few, you know, some cheese and crackers in the fridge uh, that you can grab and put on a board with a little, you know, uh, fig jam that you have in the, you know, having a few little bits and pieces just kind of mm -hmm. in advance with the knowledge that people might drop by is a great idea. Um, create a space where your home, if you live in a place where people drop in, where your home is drop inable. <laughs> That's not a word, but, you know, where people, where you feel okay with people popping in. And so that things are generally kind of tidy, but not everything's super clean. You know, obviously when people drop by, you're not taking them into your bedroom necessarily. You're not taking them into your own private bathroom, but you want to make sure that if there's a downstairs powder room, that it's fairly tidy. So I do think, I do think that psychology of being ready, but not perfect is, is the way I would do it. Thank you, Stephen. Or this has been the Thanksgiving Day Special from CBS News Radio, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull with Hunter Sense. I'm Gil Gross. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.